Iskan founder Acharya Srila Prabhupada Ki Jai Anantakoti Vaishnava Vrindaki Jai Namacharya Srila Haridas Thakur Ki Jai Prem Shikor Sri Krishna Chaitanya Prabhu Nityananda Sri Adwaita Gadadhar Sri Vasadi Gaur Bhakta Vrindaki Jai Shri Shri Radha Krishna Go Gopina Shaimakunda Radha Kunda Giddy Govardhana Ki Jai Vrindavan Dhamma Ki Jai Mathura Dhamma Ki Jai Navadrip Mayapur Dhamma Ki Jai Jagannath Puri Dhamma Ki Jai Ganga Mai Juna Devi Ki Jai Bhakti Devi Ki Jai Tulsi Maharani Ki Jai Samaveta Bhakti Vrinda Ki Jai Gaur Premande all glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to Sri Guru and Goranga. All glories to Srila Prabhupada. Nama Om Vishnu Padaya Krishna Prasthaya Bhutale. Srimate Bhaktivedanta Swami Nityanamane. Namaste Sarasvati Deve. Gauravani Pacharani. Nivasesa Sinivadi Paskutyade Satarani. Vandeham Shri Guru Shri Uta Padakamalam Shri Gurun Vaishnavamscha Shri Rupam Sagrajatam Sahagana Raganatam Bitam Sam Sajivam Sadvoitam Sadvadutam Parijana Sahita Krishna Chaitanya Devam Shri Radha Krishna Padam Sahagana Lalita Shri Vishakam Bitamscha Vanchakapa Tribuscha Kripasindavyevacha Patitanam Pavanevyo Vaishnavevunamonamaha Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya September 4th, 2014, Skype class from Hilo, Hawaii. Reading from Srimad Bhagavatam, Canto 2, Chapter 8. Questions by King Parikit. Text 3. Katayasva Mahabhaga. Katayasva <laughs> Please continue speaking. Please continue speaking. Mahabhaga. Mahabhaga. O greatly fortunate one. O greatly fortunate one. Yata. As much as. As much as. Aham. Aham. I. I. Akila Atmani. Unto the Supreme Soul. Unto the Supreme Soul. Krishna. Krishna. Unto Lord Shri Krishna. 
Nivesha having placed having Nisangam being freed from material qualities being freed from material qualities Manaha mind mind Jyakshe may relinquish may relinquish Kalevaram body body Translation and purport by Srila Prabhupada. O greatly fortunate Sukadeva Goswami, please continue narrating Srimad Bhagavatam so that I can place my mind upon the Supreme Soul, Lord Krishna, and being completely freed from material qualities, thus relinquish this body. Purport. To be fully engaged in hearing the transcendental narration described in the text of Srimad Bhagavatam means to constantly associate with the Supreme Soul, Sri Krishna. And to constantly associate with the Supreme Lord Krishna means to be liberated from the qualities of matter. Lord Krishna is like the sun, and material contamination is like darkness. As the presence of the sun dissipates darkness, Constant engagement in the association of the Lord Sri Krishna frees one from the contamination of the material qualities. Contamination by the material qualities is the cause of repeated birth and death, and liberation from material qualities is transcendence. Maharaja Pariksit was now a realized soul by the secret of liberation through the grace of Sukadeva Goswami, for the latter had informed the king that the highest perfection of life is to be in remembrance of Narayana at the end of life. Maharaj Parikit was destined to give up his body at the end of seven days, and thus he decided to continue remembering the Lord by his association with the topics of Srimad Bhagavatam, and thus to quit his body in full consciousness of the presence of the Lord Sri Krishna, the Supreme Soul. The hearing of Srimad Bhagavatam performed by professional men is different from the transcendental hearing of Maharaj Parikit. Maharaj Pariket was a soul realized in the absolute truth, Sri Krishna, the personality of Godhead. The fruit of materialist is not a realized soul. He wants to derive some material benefit from his so-called hearing of Srimad Bhagavatam. Undoubtedly, such an audience hearing Srimad Bhagavatam from the professional men can derive some material benefit as they desire. But that doesn't mean that such a pretense of hearing Srimad Bhagavatam for a week is as good as the hearing of Maharaj Parikshit. It is a duty of the sane to hear Srimad Bhagavatam from a self-realized soul and not be duped by professional men. One should continue such hearing until the end of one's life so that one can actually have the transcendental association of the Lord and thus be liberated simply by hearing Srimad Bhagavatam. Maharaj Parikit had already given up all his connections with his kingdom and family, the most attractive features of materialism, but still he was conscious of his material body. He wanted to be free of such bondage also by the constant association of the Lord. Katayasva Mahabhaga Yataham Akilatmani Krishna Niveshya Nisangam Manastrakshe Kalevaram. O greatly fortunate Sukadeva Goswami, please continue narrating Srimad Bhagavatam so that I can place my mind upon the Supreme Soul, Lord Krishna. And being completely free from material qualities, thus relinquish this body. So here we have the purpose of life. 
the final exam, how to pass it. Maharaj Parikit is here about to die, and who of us can say that we're not about to die? Prabhupada would say, how do you know who is old? And death is the final exam. The purpose of life is to pass the final exam. The purpose of going to school is to pass the exams, to graduate, right? to become qualified. This is a, it's a very short life, this life. And we're here to learn something. This is a, it's a school. It's a reform school. It's a prison school. But we're here to learn something. And most people understand that. Even most materialistic people have some idea that life is meant for, for learning something, for accomplishing something, that there's some kind of criteria against which one can evaluate or assess or judge whether or not a person has led a good life. I mean, even the grossest materialistic persons, even persons who are devoid of atmatatva, who don't inquire into the deeper philosophical things of life, they have an idea of the good guys and the bad guys, yes? They, they have some movies, some books, some discussion about the good guys and the bad guys. I mean, it may be very simplistic that, you know, the good guys are the Shiite Muslims and the bad guys are the Sunni Muslims or something like that. The good guys are the Americans and the bad guys are the Russians. You know, it may be simplistic. But this concept that there is such a thing as good and bad, that there is a criteria by which one can evaluate one's life, uh, that's there among every human being. So the reality is there is such a criteria. Not only is there such a criteria, but there is an exam. Now there's ongoing exams. It's not that death is the only exam or that death is, is the only thing that concerns us. And death is not independent of life. Saying, kalevaram, when I'm going to give up this body, when I'm relinquishing this body. So this is... His prime concern is the final exam, just like in, in graduate school, in each of our classes, we had individual exams. Generally, they were writing a final paper. Sometimes they were uh, tests. Someone's making a lot of noise with papers that maybe should needs to mute their microphone. Anyway, in each class, we had individual exams, uh, some individual assessment but then we have what was called a comprehensive exam. So the comprehensive exam, we had to write a 30-40 page paper where we referenced all the classes that we took. And then that wasn't even the end. Then you have to write your dissertation, your thesis, and you have to defend it. There's a final exam for that. You have to go in front of a committee and you have to defend it. And then you graduate. So this idea that there's little tests throughout life and then there's the big one. The little tests throughout life, of course, are happening at every moment. Uh, frankly, I mean, they're, they're happening at every moment. Then there's somewhat bigger ones. You know, when, when somebody insults us or things don't go the way that we wanted or we get sick or we get injured or, you know, the, the difficulties in life. Those are a little bit bigger tests. And, and then sometimes there's even bigger tests. Sometimes there's, there's really huge tests. And then there's the final final, final one. Yam yam bhapi sram bhavam tvajachante kalevaram 
Tam-tam evaiti kanteya sadatam baba bhavita. Ha, here we have again the word kalevaran and twaktya. Twaktva deha, as Krishna says. Twaktva deha punar janmanam eti sorjuna. So what are we trying to do at this final exam? It's good to know in advance what is it we're trying to do. What's the purpose? You know, in a, a good school and a good teacher, they tell you what's going to be on the final exam. Not necessarily the specific questions, but at least in general they tell you. It's only terrible teachers who don't at all tell you what you're going to be tested on. So Krishna tells us, that what you're tested on, manmana bhava mad bhakta, majadi parayanaha. That what what you're going to be tested on is how much you're thinking of Krishna. And Krishna tells us very clearly that there's different destinations, of many different destinations, practically speaking, as many destinations as there are jivas in, in a, oh, a specific way. But in a general way, he talks about that. If you're in the mode of goodness, you can go up to the higher planets or you can take birth on this planet as a poet or philosopher. If you're in the mode of passion, you take birth on this planet as a very wealthy person or a very powerful person. If you're in the mode of ignorance, you take birth as an animal or even on the lower planets as a demon. And then, of course, there's combinations of this. If you're in passion and ignorance, you could take birth as a poor person in a family of alcoholic criminals and so forth and so on. So Krishna gives us these different destinations. And then, of course, we know that there's, even on the spiritual level, there's different destinations. Brahmaiti, Paramatmaiti, Bhagavaniti, Subjate. One can merge into the Brahman, one can merge into the Paramatma, or go to the planet of Swetadweep in this world. One can go in the inter- intermediate place to Lord Shiva's abode. And, um, so one goes to these different realms. One can go to uh, unlimited varieties of Vaikuntha planets where Sanatana Goswami describes the, the varieties of forms and relationships with Lord Narayan one can have. One can go to Ayodhya in the spiritual world, to Indraprastha, to Dwaraka, to Matara, to Goloka Vrindavan. So there, there's so many varieties of destinations that one can have when one goes through these little exams and then the final exam. So it's not exactly like a regular exam in this world. You know, you take an exam for your driving test and you either pass or fail. You, it's not, you don't have a variety of options, but with, with this final exam, there's a variety of options. It's, it's very open and individual, as I emphasize many, many times in my, in my preaching, that the, this reality is not a bureaucracy. Reality is not a machine. Reality is very personal. So really what the final exam is about, it, it's much more, and all these little exams, it's much more like a personal interview. It's not really like a multiple-choice exam or a computer-generated multiple-choice exam. It's not like that. It's really like a personal interview. And the interview is very much, you know, what do you want? What do you want? That Krishna, the Supreme Eternal, is fulfilling the desires of everyone from the beginning of time. He's a self-sufficient philosopher who's fulfilling everyone's desires. So it's, it's really these exams 
throughout life, we were reading the other day in the seventh chapter that I think it was, maybe it was the first verse in this one, where we get our karma both in this life and in from previous lives. So sometimes it's even in this life. These little exams, what do you want? What do you want? And then the directors of the universe and ultimately the super souls we're seeing here, Akila Atmani again, this word, the super soul gives us what we want. Everything we're getting is what we want. And these exams are not, they're not really like some somebody testing us in, in a punitive way. They're really people uh, trying to understand, or understanding, we could say Krishna doesn't have to try to understand, but the rectors of the universe and the Lord himself understanding or trying to understand what it is that we want. Please tell me what you want. And they understand what we want, certainly by what we say we want, for sure, but also by what we do, body, mind, and words, what we do. And here the emphasis is, as it always is, what we think about, manas. Where is our mind? What is our intent? Where, what is our consciousness? Now, on, a, on a minute-to-minute basis, what is our consciousness? What is our intent? Are we trying to please Krishna? And although it's a fact that we can get a variety of what we want, that there's, there's basically an unlimited variety of what we, we can want and what we can get, still we're advised by Krishna himself, what is the best thing to want that will make us the happiest? You know, Krishna is sort of like the best customer service representative. You know, recently I've been having to take care of some things for which I had to talk to customer service representatives, and some of them are really helpful. I needed to get a new backpack for my computer. I still haven't gotten one that I really want. But anyway, so, you know, I I talk to one company. I see this really good backpack online. Does it have this and that feature? And it doesn't say online, tell me what the feature is. And sometimes they'll tell you, oh, yeah, it's like this, like this. Does it have this? No, it doesn't have that. Do you have any backpacks that have that? No, this is the only one, and that's too big. And You know, sometimes they'll even say, we don't really have what you want at our store. Sorry, we can't help you. And other times you call a place and you ask them questions and they say, I don't know. You just have to look what's online. You know, we can't help you. (laughs) You could always return it if you don't like it. So there's all these varieties of, of customer service representatives, customer service protocol. But Krishna's the best customer service. He's telling you, all right, there's this unlimited catalog in the universe where this is what you can get. Here's all the things you can get through karma. Here's all the things you can get through gyan. Here's all the things you can get through yoga. Here's all the things you can get through bhakti. And look, this is my recommendation. Of course, sometimes the devotees will give lesser recommendations for a particular individual, just like when Lord Shiva met Vrikasura, and Vrikasura asked him, who should I worship? What process should I do? And Narada Muni didn't tell him to worship uh, Vishnu. Narada Muni told him to worship Shiva because he could understand that the demon's desires weren't compatible with Vishnu Bhakti, that he'd be just frustrated with that process. So Krishna and the great devotees will uh, sometimes for an individual, often, frankly, as super soul in the heart,
Ishwara Sarvabhutanam Radeshya Jnachistati Brahman Sarvabhutani Yantra Rudradi Maya. They'll recommend lesser things. No, they'll not necessarily recommend the highest thing for all individuals. I mean, we also do that on, a, on a, I'll say, a superficial level in dealing with devotees in this world. So, for example, the highest ashram is sannyas, but we don't say to everybody, okay, you should take sannyas immediately. Because we know that if we do that, that it will be a catastrophe. You know, so it's it's always what's the best in general, and then what's the best for this person, and what's the best for this person at this time. So therefore, Srila Prabhupada, sometimes in his preaching, would say to people, just stop eating cows. I mean, sometimes he was talking with a Christian, and the only advice that Prabhupada gave them was stop eating cows. He didn't, give them, he didn't even tell them to offer their food. You know, it's funny, sometimes devotees pick out those quotes from Prabhupada where he says, we're not interested in preaching vegetarianism, we're only interested in preaching about prasadam. But there were many times that Prabhupada did preach just about vegetarianism. Or sometimes the Prabhupada preached just about not killing cows. And he would say, he said to this, this people, you know, just eat goats. Eat goats, eat dogs, eat chickens. <laughs> you know, sometimes he would even say to people, you can eat cows, but wait till they die a natural death. So sometimes one may give advice to people uh, for something lesser than uh, Raj Prema Bhakti. At the same time, the advice to take up Raj Prema Bhakti, especially under Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's banner, is widely given to all. So we'll say to people, take up Raj Prema Bhakti. Oh, okay, well, you can't do that. Like Krishna in the 12th chapter, you can't do that, do this, you can't do that, do this, you can't do that, do this. But the goal is Prema Bhakti uh, in Vraj. That is the highest thing to aspire for. Now, in a very, that's a very specific, in a very general way. In this verse, we're looking in a very general way, not specific to Vraja, uh, but a general way to Krishna, to Narayan. Uh, so we have here uh, Krishna. And Nisangam. So we have Akila Atmani, which is really Paramatma. Akila Atmani Krishna. So it's general. It's not, this is not Vasudeva Krishna. It's not Nanda Nandana Krishna. In this particular verse, we're speaking generally about Paramatma Bhagavan, up from Brahman, you know, up not Brahman, but Paramatma and Bhagavan. Akila Atmane Krishna Niveshya having place, Nisangam being free from material qualities, Manaha mind. So this is the best way to get the best goal in our exams, both in the final exam at death and in the day-to-day exams. Of all the choices that we can make, of where we want to go and what we want to be, this is advised as the best choice. Again, in this particular verse, not in the Bhagavatam as a whole, but in this particular verse, it's very general. So this particular verse is not talking only about Vraja. This particular verse could apply to any of the Vaikuntha planets, to Ayoja and, and so forth. But this is what what's want this is what's advised. If you're really intelligent, 
if you're really intelligent, then the choice you will make is get free of the material modes and absorb your consciousness in Krishna, the Supreme Soul. And when you do that, then everything else that one should do will automatically be revealed. So people are are asking, you know, myself included, I think we're all asking questions, should I go to India this year or not? Should I get this new job or this other job? What are the choices I have in this situation? Do I go shopping today or tomorrow? Somebody just wrote me a nasty email. Do I ignore it? Do I write a nice one back? Do I write a nasty one back? Do I fix my car or not fix my car? How much money do I spend on a new pair of shoes? What do I do for the next half an hour? You know, these are the the little exams that are being given to us moment by moment by moment. And in all of them, if we do this basic thing, Akila Atmane Krishna Nivesha Nisangam Manaha, that we place Krishna in our mind and become free from the material qualities. If we do that, then we will always make the choices that will bring us the highest good. And then certainly at the time of death, we will go to the supreme destination that is possible for any jiva to go to. We will attain the highest destination. So let's look at why this is so, and then what's given here specifically in this purport, how to do this. So why is it a fact that of all the different ways of being good and of all the different ways of evaluating our life, evaluating our moment-to-moment and all the different ways of traversing at the final exam, this absorbing one's mind in Krishna free from the material qualities is the best measure of being good. So we ask then, well, what is, what is good? What, is, what does it mean, good? And if we analyze even just a little bit, Prabhupada sometimes would say that even without reading the scriptures or hearing from authority, if one just studies nature, one can understand a lot about reality and God. So what is good? Good is something that's in harmony with the way things are, with the, with, with the way things are constituted, with things essential, with things essential nature, with the essential nature of things. Just like what is good for the body. What is good for the body is something that resonates, that is in harmony with the way the body is structured, the way the body is designed. What's good use of a car is behaviors that are in accord with the design of the car, the design of the roads, the design and the function of the traffic laws. So if there's a, a symmetry, if there's a, or even further, a congruency between the way one is operating a car and the design of the car and the design of the roads and the design of the laws, that is good. And the more there's an opposition, that is bad. So if you put food in the body that is in harmony with the way the body functions, that is good. If you put food in the body that is out of harmony with the way the body functions, that is bad. This is, it's, this is not a difficult concept to understand. Even a very primitive human being can understand this. In fact, 
I, we could say that even an animal can understand this. Of course, an animal does this by instinct. Something that's in harmony with my body. So for a cow to eat meat is bad, for a tiger to eat grass is bad. What we're discussing now is, of course, I'm sure many of you have thought, aha, she's talking about dharma. Yes, that is dharma. Dharma, Prabhupada says so many times, is the intrinsic nature of something. If you act with the intrinsic nature of something, that is dharma. And as soon as you have that criteria, immediately it is very clear what is dharma and what is adharma. All the, everything becomes clear. Meat eating is instantly understood for a human body as being a dharma, just by studying the structure of the teeth, the chemical composition of the saliva, the length of the intestines, etc. One can understand that meat eating is a dharma. It's not a difficult thing to understand. One can understand that contraception is a dharma. You know, you're, you're not working with the structure and the function of the, of the thing of the body. So what is our essential dharma that is given, that our essential dharma is service, our essential dharma is giving, our essential dharma is not taking. Taking is a dharma and giving is dharma. This concept of charity and sacrifice. Therefore Krishna says charity, sacrifice and penance should never be given up they purify even the great souls. And sarvagatam brahma nitya yagya pratistitam. Truth is always found in sacrifice. So this is dharma. And then one would say giving to who? In what mood? In what, uh, for what purpose? And interestingly enough, the highest giving is to oneself. You may say, well, that's taking. Well, no, it's not. The highest giving is giving for the benefit of oneself, giving in a way that fills one with joy. And who is ultimately oneself? Like here it says that Maharaj Frickett was most attached to his body, that he'd given up attachment. What does it say here? He'd given up attachment to kingdom and family, but still he had some consciousness of his material body. So this is also explained very nicely in the 10th canto in relationship to Krishna expanding as all of the cowherd boys and the calves and how the mothers and fathers, uh, that means the mother cows too, the mother cows became so attached to their little baby calves who were actually Krishna and the mothers and fathers of the cowherd boys who normally had more attachment to Krishna than their own children then became very attached to their own children who were not really their own children but who were actually Krishna and when Maharaj Prickett asked about this in astonishment, Sukadeva Goswami said that all of us are most attached to our own body. We have attachment to our possessions. You know, I'm attached to my computer. I take good care of it. I don't want to lose it. We're attached to our, our home, our vehicles, etc. If we have animals, we're attached to our animals. More attachment are to our family members. Most attachment are to our very intimate family members, and higher than that is attachment to our own body. More attachment than to our own body is to our mind, and more than that, of course, is attachment to our real self, the soul. And higher attachment than that, 
Sukadeva Goswami says, is to this Akila Atmani, to the soul of our soul, <laughs> to the self of our self, to the Supreme Self. So really our highest attachment is to Krishna. So the highest sacrifice is to the ultimate self. The highest giving is to the ultimate self, which, uh, or who upon given to, then includes everyone and everything. The watering the root of the tree analogy, the feeding the stomach analogy. So that is what's good. And therefore, because that is the highest good, therefore meditation on that and intention for that constitutes the highest good at any moment in time, in any situation. If in any situation, at any situation, with any other persons, at any point in time, if one is absorbing one's mind in giving to the Akila Atmane, in giving to the Supreme Lord, then one has the highest destination moment by moment, the highest experience moment by moment, and the highest ultimate destination. Now it's interesting that doing this sort of meditation and intention to give to Akila Atmane Krishna with the desire to please him, Anukulena Krishna Anushilanam, also includes naturally as a concomitant factor being free from the modes of material nature, nisangam. So this is the other part of understanding what's good is also understanding what is bad. One has to know both good and bad side by side. So what is bad, of course, is doing something against one's nature, doing something that is false, maya, that which is not and maya is constituted, that which is not, is constituted of three modes. One can say that the essence of maya is simply thinking that I am the taker, I am the enjoyer, rather than that I am the giver and I am the servant. And in that way, maya is um, undifferentiated. Maya is basically the same for any living entity that's in maya. <laughs> It's basically, I'm the Lord, I'm the Master, everyone should give to me, and I don't give to you. I am the taker. However, this I am the taker, I am the Purusha, I am the Akila Atmani, it has many flavors, just like serving Krishna has many flavors, although they're not discussed in this verse. Serving Krishna has many flavors, one can serve in the five primary rasas, the seven secondary rasas in, in so many different abodes. Right? Uh, however, uh, still you could say there's prema and there's maya. <laughs> but in any case, these modes have their different varieties, different ways, so many different ways of being in a false illusory state. You know, there's so many... It's just like with food, there's so many kinds of real food. There's real peaches, and there's real apples, and there's real bananas, and then there's so many kinds of fake food. There's 
banana-flavored candy and peach-flavored candy and so forth and so on. So as many varieties of real food as there are, there is an equal number of varieties of fake food. So one has to be not only in the reality, one has to be free from the varieties of falsity. And our endeavor is not to get free from falsity as much as it is to get into reality. You know, if your stomach is full of prasadam, then what is the question of eating meat, fish, and eggs? So, although we make some endeavor to be a vegetarian, you know, if we go to the store, we look at the labels on the food, and we make some effort. It's not that, it's not that we don't make any effort to be a vegetarian. I mean, I suppose if you have a lifestyle where someone else shops for you and cooks for you and feeds you all the time, then you, and you trust that person or persons, then you don't have to make any effort to be a vegetarian or a prasadarian. But if that's not the case, I, I think for most of us that's not the case, then we have to make some effort, certainly. At the same time, uh, mostly we're concentrated on how am I going to please Krishna, how am I going to find, uh, get food that will please Krishna. So this is true in general, that it's not so much a focus on anartadavritti as it is on artapavritri, that it's a focus is more on how can I please Krishna in this moment, how can I please Krishna in this moment, how can I think of Krishna in this moment, how can I engage in this activity, this etc., in such a way that Krishna will smile. And when one does that, naturally the modes dissipate, just like the fog when the sun rises and how it dissipates is we're going to get to in a minute. Okay, so now we understand that life is about good. We understand that there's varieties of choices of what we can consider good. We understand what is the supreme good. And we understand also, at least in a general way, what is the bad. So how does one absorb oneself in the good? Because you can just say, okay, just do it. Just think about Krishna and think about Krishna now with a desire to please him and just do it. And I think that most of us have concluded that that doesn't work very well. You know, our, our mind is absorbed in something else. So why, what is our mind absorbed in? Our mind is absorbed, and this is a real secret, folks. Our mind is absorbed in things related to our identity. So how we identify ourselves dictates what we think about and our choices and so forth and so on. So we want to get right down to the root of identity. This is why Prabhupada said in preaching, he asked one devotee, how do you preach? And he said, I tell people that there's a God. Prabhupada said, no, no, start with you're not this body. So the first thing is identity. How are we going to understand our real identity? Which will then naturally, the moment we understand our real identity, we will stop being absorbed in you know, oh, I'm having this trouble with my child, my wife's driving me crazy, my husband's driving me crazy, my government's driving me crazy, the customer service people are driving me crazy, the weather's driving me crazy. As soon as we understand that I'm a soul, we automatically, our consciousness goes to pleasing Krishna. And how do we understand that we're a soul? Well, we could give many answers to that, but the answer in today's verse is quite simple. Hearing Shastra. That's our answer here in today's verse. Katayasva Mahabhaga. Hearing the Shastra. 
And of course, Nityam Bhagavata Sevaya, to be always or regularly hearing. And of course, the hearing has to have two requirements, which Srila Prabhupada gives in this purport, and he gives over and over and over again, the speaker and the listener, both. Um, the other day, Vidyagda Madhava Prabhu and I were discussing the fact that many times as a preacher of the Shastra, many times as a preacher of Bhagavatam, one will experience that one says things that amaze oneself. That one will be preaching and, and all of a sudden something will come out of your mouth that you don't know where it came from. It's like, well, you do know where it came from. But I mean, it's, it's not from you. You know it's not from you. you. You're aware that it's from Krishna and you're hearing you're, you're hearing Krishna speak through you. So Vedagda Madhava Prabhu was saying how that that kind of thing happens not only when the speaker is properly situated, but also when the audience is very eager. And he sent me a nice quote for Chaitanya Mahaprabhu talking to Sanatana Goswami, where Sanatana Goswami asked about the Atmarama verse, and Mahaprabhu was saying that he and Sarvabhoma Bhattacharya were just a couple of madmen, and he didn't know what they were talking about. He said, but because you're very eager to hear, your eagerness to hear will allow me to speak things. And of course, Ramananda Roy talks about this with Mahaprabhu also, where he says, you're the one, by your eagerness to hear, you're the one who's putting this knowledge in my heart and coming out of my mouth. So it's, it's fascinating that when the audience is very receptive, the speaker is able to give knowledge that astonishes even them. And both things need to be there. So Prabhupada's cautioning us, be careful who you hear Bhagavatam from. Don't hear Bhagavatam, as Prabhupada says, by the professional men. Don't hear Bhagavatam from people who are just speaking it as a, as a business, who are just speaking it, you know, like somebody will teach chemistry in a college. It's that that's not going to help you. And also, hear with rapt attention. Hear with with a desire to absorb the mind in Krishna, not as a religious ritual, and not, Prabhupada said here, looking for material benefits. It's interesting that Prabhupada says, if the audience is contaminated and the speaker is contaminated, Bhagavatam is still so potent that they can certainly get material benefits from hearing it. So that's, that's pretty interesting. You know, he, ca- he says that even if you have a bad audience and a bad speaker... A fruit of materialistic audience, Prabhupada says, and a professional speaker, you can derive some material benefit as they desire. So that's how potent the Bhagavatam is. It's this desire tree. So just imagine if speaking it wrongly with the wrong consciousness and hearing it wrongly, if both things are present, still one can get some material benefit. Just imagine the benefit one can get if one hears from the right source with the proper intent. And Prabhupada often compares that to pregnancy. If the man is potent and the woman is fertile, then there'll be pregnancy. So we want to be pregnant with Krishna. We want to be filled with Krishna. Or we give the example of a field. You know, if you have fertile soil in a field and you plant a potent seed in the field, then you will have a plant. So both have to be there. You know, Jesus talked about the rain falling. Does the rain fall on the rocks? Does the rain fall on the fertile soil? So just having a potent speaker also isn't enough. One has to be a, an eager listener, an eager listener, not hearing as something official, 
So, of course, the Shastra explains that the way to hear is to hear, to reflect, and to meditate. You know, I've given the example recently. I was in one temple where they read from Prabhupada's books right after Mangalartik. In this case, they were reading from Nectar Devotion. So they read one paragraph. It was from the end of Nectar Devotion. So it was one of those little stories, you know, that illustrates a particular point that Rupa Goswami gives. So during my Bhagavatam class with that day, which was just a few hours later, there was something in the verse and purport that related to what we had read that morning. And so I asked everybody, do you remember what we read this morning? And nobody remembered. And I asked the brahmachari who had read it, and he didn't remember. So this is very typical. I think most of us experience manda sumanda matayo, that we hear something or we read something, and literally five or ten minutes later we don't remember what we read or what we heard. It's just gone. So reading and hearing, whether we're reading on our own or, or reading with someone else, should be done with reflection. And uh, I don't want to promote only one study method. I see that devotees have found as many study methods as there are individuals that will help them in this. But I, I can say in my own life, and I'm not saying that what I found is necessarily going to help everybody, but there are certain ways of reading that I find particularly helpful for reflection. For example, Krishna Dharma Prabhu and his wife Chintamani Dham in London have a wonderful way of studying Srila Prabhupada's books, and they're now getting a, a growing group of devotees who are using this study method to go deep into reflective and meditative hearing. I, I can't do this with a Skype class, but I've also used this method in teaching a class. I remember the first time I used this method in teaching a class, it was in Soho Street in London, and what came out of that class was just astonishing. And I had people calling me and talking to me and emailing me for the rest of the day with their bubbling up realizations about the verse and the purport. And what, what they do, what Krishna Dharma Pramun Chintamani Dham do, is they take the verse and purport sentence by sentence. Occasionally they may do two or three sentences, but generally they do one sentence at a time. And they first try to really understand that sentence. What is that sentence saying? Without their own realization about it, without their own response to it, without even referencing any other part of the Shastra, just what is that sentence saying within the context of that purport? Uh, and sometimes within the context of the previous purport and the, within the context of the verse and so forth. And they reflect back and forth, something like an empathic listening, what they understand the meaning of that sentence to be, and then they go with that sentence and they discuss their own realizations, their own responses to that sentence, again, back and forth with empathic listening. And every single time I study, you have to do this with at least one more person, you can't do it alone, but every time I've studied the scriptures in, with this method, I've always, consistently, 100% of the time, found new understandings and new realizations that I didn't start out with. What I've also find is that studying in that method, almost always, probably 90% of the time, I remember what I read. And I'll often remember what I read and I discuss for months or years later. Whereas just reading through, I find, doesn't have that effect. Another thing I find very helpful is to hear the scriptures. So I have a lot of recordings of audio books, uh, of Prabhupada's books and books of the Goswamis. And I find that hearing the scriptures 
alongside with reading them and alongside with discussion, really helps me to meditate on them. In fact, I find that often by hearing the books, I'm much more likely to feel that I'm there in what the books are talking about. So like in today's verse, this is Maharaj uh, Parikit asking a question of Sukadeva Goswami. And to what extent, or asking a question, ask, making a request of Sukadeva Goswami, and to what extent when we hear this today's verse, do we get a sense of being there? Do we get a sense that I'm there, you know, at the Ganga? Just like people read an ordinary book, fiction, nonfiction, some ordinary narrative, and you, you end up going there in your mind. You end up being with the characters. You can be so absorbed with the characters that you lose some sense of the world around you, and that when you put down the book, as you're going through your everyday activities, you're really still meditating on the book. Of course, that can happen also with movies and computer games, that you, you become so absorbed in the narrative that it's like mentally you enter into the narrative. So we are meant to do that with the Shastra. It's not that you know we just do that with mundane books, but we're meant to do that with the Shastra. And if we do this regularly with the Shastra, however one may do it, but one should find a method by which they can do that. One should find some method of studying by which one really enters into the Shastra, where the Shastra becomes real, where we start to understand who are these people. We start to have some understanding. We can start to say, oh, I, I feel like I know Maharaj Parikit. I feel like I know Sukadeva Goswami. Just like I mean, really, this in the mundane world, if we think about some popular book, you know, hundreds of years ago, it would have been Macbeth and Merchant of Venice, and today it's probably Lord of the Rings or Star Wars or Superman or something like that, where people become absorbed in the characters, and they're, they feel like they know the characters. They feel like they, they know the personality of these fictional characters. Or people do this with, with non-fictional persons. They become absorbed in the lives of some movie star or some sports star who they've never met, but they feel like they really know them. You know, I really know this person, and, and I, I know what their life is like. So we all, we all have the capacity to do this. We all, are, we all know this process, how to do this. We're, we're all perfectly capable of doing this if we read Lord of the Rings or, or if we read about some football player. And this is what we're meant to do with the Shastra. If we do this with the Shastra, if we do this with the Shastra and we absorb our mind in Krishna, then at every moment, and what to speak of at the final exam, we will be good we will be absorbed in the ultimate good. And then as we are being interviewed moment by moment by the directors of the universe and the directors of the transcendental sphere, what is it you want? What is it you want? What is it you want? What do you want? What do you want? What do you want? Do you want? Our answer will be Krishna. Krishna Seva, Krishna Bhakti, Krishna Prema. That's what I want. That's what I want. That's what I want. Questions, comments? Okay, we have a question from somebody here in the room with me. 
Yes, what is your question? I will repeat it for everybody else. What is the difference between listening to a professional reciter and listening to somebody who's recording something and then charging for it? What is the difference? So Nitsch is asking, what is the difference between listening to a professional reciter and listening to someone who's recording and then charging for the recording? Someone who's making a recording. Someone who makes a recording and then charging. Um, I think we could say it doesn't have to be a recording. It could be charging at all. So, for example, Srila Prabhupada would sometimes say that he would only go to certain preaching engagements if they would pay. So there were times, although Prabhupada said in general that we don't charge anything for our instruction, there were certain times when, when Prabhupada was invited to give a lecture somewhere and he would say, unless they are willing to pay, we don't go. So what I think your question really is, is can we determine whether or not someone's a professional by whether or not there's an, a, an exchange of money? Is that really your question? Yes, Nitch is nodding her head. So I don't know how time we have, how much time we have for this, but very briefly, a sacrifice without remuneration to the priest is in the mode of ignorance. And Kamsa and Hiranyakashipu specifically wanted to stop all sacrifices in which the priests were remunerated. So any time that you take something from somebody, you're supposed to pay them for it. You're supposed to give something back. You're never supposed to just take without giving something back. That entangles us in the law of karma. So when we hear Shastra from somebody, we should repay them in some way. This is just normal civilized behavior that we're expected that if we take just like in in ordinary life if you go to to take a class from somebody and you know whatever crocheting you're expected to give something now of course in our ordinary life in the west if it's listed as a free class we generally don't feel obliged to give something you'll find even today in india and even indians throughout the world have this concept of giving. It's very much there in the Indian culture. So the Indians have a concept that even if something's advertised as free, that still you give something. Or just like the way I was raised was when you visit someone's house, you always bring a gift. And Prabhupada talks about this. He talks, talks back to Rupa Goswami, talks about whenever you go to the temple, you should bring a gift, even if it's just a handful of rice or even just a flower. And also when you visit a saintly person, you should bring a gift. So just visiting a saintly person, you should bring a gift. This is the standard Vedic culture. And it's, it's not so prevalent in most Western countries. So in most Western countries, the concept that if I visit someone's house, I give them a gift. And if I get something from someone, I give them something in exchange. We, we've kind of lost this. We're just sort of happy. Oh, great. They're not charging anything. Fantastic. You know, I can get it for free. Whoop, whoop-de-doo, you know. Um, so the fact is, especially people who are only preachers of Bhagavatam and are not doing anything else to earn a livelihood, they're dependent on Krishna, of course, but in, in an external way, they're dependent on the gifts of the audience. And they may go on preaching whether the audience gives them gifts or not, but it's the duty of the audience, especially to maintain people like that. You know, if you have a householder preacher who has a full-time job and does some preaching on the weekend, that's a little different than somebody who's a full-time 100% preacher, whether they're householders or they're renunciates, and somebody who doesn't have any time to earn a living, 
because they're spending all their time preaching the Bhagavatam, is supposed to be maintained. So from the point of view of the hearers, they should always give something. It's interesting, when I was in Manipur, I saw that there was a culture there of traveling kirtan parties, mostly women, interestingly enough, and these kirtan parties would go from one temple to another and they would sing the songs of Narottama Das Thakur. Before they would start singing, the head of the temple would place some money in front of each of the singers and also a piece of cloth. And I was thinking if they do this a lot, they're going to have a whole lot of cloth. <laughs> each of them could start a cloth shop. Uh, but of course, the, what the Brahmins do is when they get more than they need, they immediately give it away. The Brahminas are not hoarders. Uh, the Brahminas are not. Of course, there were some wealthy Brahminas uh, in previous times, but the Brahminas were uh, were such that they give away in charity, and that's one of the reasons you give to a Brahmana is you you understand that they'll take what they need, and they'll use the rest for some charitable purpose. They'll use the rest for some good purpose. So that's on the part of the hearer, on the part of the receiver. The hearer should always be giving. They should always think, okay, I'm taking something from someone. How can I give them? Um, From the point of view of the speaker, whether or not people give anything is to some extent indicative of how much they want to hear, quite frankly, which is my understanding of why in certain circumstances Srila Prabhupada would insist on an exchange of money and why in general Srila Prabhupada insisted that we don't give away his books for free. Why in general, with some exceptions, Prabhupada asked that we get money for the books. Because that exchange, is there's some in indication there that a person values. You know, I had, I had a situation in, in the Hare Krishna movement where I gave a lot of service to a particular community. And frankly, the service I gave, although I was asked to give that service, wasn't particularly valued. And later on, the head of that community asked me again to give the same service. And I said, this time I'll only do it if you give me some money. I said, because last time I gave it freely and it wasn't valued at all. In fact, I was insulted. I said, so this time, if you want me to do it again, you have to pay me something. And the immediate response is, well, forget it. (laughs) We, We don't want it from you. So sometimes that's indicative of somebody's interest. You know, one is not supposed to throw your pearls before swine so that they trample them underfoot. One's not supposed to preach the glories of the holy name to the faithless. And how do we, how do we tell whether or not we're wasting our shakti and wasting our time on an unreceptive audience? Because we're not supposed to do that. That's, in, in fact, an offense to the holy name, and it's not pleasing to Krishna. It's, it's, Krishna doesn't really want us doing that. I mean, sometimes we may just go out in the street and we give the holy name without consideration who's fit and unfit and who's interested and not interested. And you kind of, it's kind of like going out and taking a bunch of seeds and just throwing them out into the wind. You know, so we do that, certainly. It's not that we don't do that. That's Mahaprabhu's mood to do that. But, you know, we also, if we're going to give the idea of a disciple should be qualified, that it's a guru shouldn't, shouldn't choose an unqualified disciple, there should be some indication that the people who are hearing from us, the people to whom we're giving our time and effort, are going to make good use of it. It's very frustrating. You know, somebody comes to you, please help me, please help me, please give me advice, please help me, please help me. 
and you know you spend an hour or two helping them and then they they don't follow anything they don't listen they just tell you well, I can't do it I don't <laughs> So there has to be some indication. It doesn't have to be money. Money isn't the only way of, of reciprocating. But the preacher should be looking for some sort of reciprocation. At the very least, the, the most important payment that a preacher wants is that the audience sincerely try to put the, the instruction into practice in their lives. That, that's really what they're looking for, that at the time of hearing that a person is receptive, you know, Prabhupada really didn't like it when during Bhagavatam class people were making garlands or making giwiks. I mean, he would always tell them to stop. So at the, at the time of speaking that people are receptive, and what do people do with the knowledge? What do they do with it? Are they, are they just kind of collecting it on their shelf? And I've been to so many... Uh, lectures and things like that. And sometimes it's a practical matter when you ask about making a recording and selling the recording. So that may be a very practical matter that one of the reasons Prabhupada wanted people to pay for the books is as an in, as an indication of their eagerness to hear. And another reason was just practical. If people don't pay for the books, how are you going to print more books? I mean, it's, it's a very practical thing. So, you know, it, and people don't function so much nowadays on a donation basis. So the, the ideal Brahmana and the ideal Vanaprastha Sannyasi, Brahmachari, they don't charge a fi- fixed price. They say, okay, here's my CD, here's my book, and you give whatever you want. And that's mostly what we've done with Prabhupada's books when we sell them on the street. We say you give a donation as you like. But that doesn't work quite so well in other venues. You know, it's, it's, but that's the ideal thing. The ideal thing is we say to people, listen, I have to get some money for this to, to continue. I mean, that's like I have a book I'm selling on Amazon, and Amazon doesn't have that feature where people can just put in any amount. You know, it's, <laughs> they don't have that. You, you have to list a fixed price and people pay for it or not. So sometimes you may have to list a fixed price just because, because, because. Sometimes you have to do it because of the venue. Sometimes you have to do it just because it's called the yuga. I mean, I give the example all the time that when I was running a gurukula, if I had just said to the parents, just give whatever you want from your heart, you know, people at the end of a month, they would have given me a bag of rice. They would have, for sure, no doubt about it. They would have just given me a sari. And I couldn't go to the bank and say, what was the bank that we had there? Yeah, okay, Central Carolina Bank. So I couldn't go to the bank and say, okay, I'm going to pay the mortgage for the Gurukul building with a sari. It just wouldn't work. And, you know, when the brahmanas could live under a tree, like Prabhupada talked about, a brahmana goes to a, a village and he just sits under a tree. He said, or sits in a corridor. It's pro- interesting, Prabhupada said, he sits in a corridor under a tree and whatever the students bring, that's what he eats. Prabhupada talked about one brahmana who sits under a tamarind tree and his, his students collect rice, his wife collects rice and alms from the neighbors, and he picks some tamarind, and he eats the tamarind and the rice, and that's how he lives. But you can't do that today. The government will arrest you. If you try to have a school under a tree, the government will arrest you. You're not, you don't have the proper permit, you know, you don't have the proper building codes. There's even a lot of countries in America where if homeless people set up a tent, the government comes with razors and rips the tent up or confiscates their belongings. 
you know, it's practically illegal to be homeless in much of the world. So how are you going to do it, you know? Therefore, sometimes one may have to charge a fixed rate. Okay, well, then the question is going to be, and I'm sorry this is a long answer. I don't know how to answer this in a short form. So then the answer is going to be, well, if whether or not money and gifts or exchange is not the measure of profession, whether or not one is a professional person, what does Prabhupada mean by a professional person? And here we come to intent. Anukulena Krishna Anushilanam. Is the intent to please Krishna or is the intent to make money? That's it. Because whether or not money is exchanged doesn't mean anything. Whether or not a fixed price is charged doesn't mean anything. You can have some professional person who comes and says, oh, whatever donation you want to give me is fine. They might say that. You know, you might have some Bhagavad Saptaha where somebody doesn't charge a fixed rate and where they're not even openly asking for money. But still, they could be a professional person. If the person's intent is, oh, this is a good place to preach the Bhagavatam, there's a lot of rich people here. Actually, it's really funny, in the, at least in some versions of the Mahabharata, when the Pandavas are in the forest after leaving Ekachakra and killing Bakasura, different Bakasura than who Krishna killed, and they're wandering disguised as Brahmanas. So they meet some other Brahmanas who tell them about Draupadi's Swayamvar. And these Brahmins say to them, you should go to the Swayamvar because there's going to be lots and lots of rich Satris there and they're going to be so happy at the festival that they'll give you a lot of money. They'll give you a lot of... It'll, it's be a good place to go to get donations. And we're going to be frank that we hear this sometimes in, in among devotees, contemporary devotees, that, oh, why don't you go preach in such and such a place? There you're likely to get donations. I'm serious. I mean, really, people will say that kind of thing. And that's being a professional man. Beginning, middle, end of story. If one is, is thinking, I'm going to go preach in that place because they are unlikely to get donations, and I'm not going to preach in that place because they are not likely to get donations, that's professional, even if you're not charging a fixed rate. Because then your motive is for your maintenance. Your motive is not to please Krishna. So you want to hear Bhagavatam from someone whose motive is to please Guru and Krishna, uh, no matter how they're maintaining themselves. Okay, and now Jai Jagadish says, our intent can also be mixed. I want to please Krishna, and I also want to make some money. All right, uh, what can you do? Uh, all of us start off with mixed motives. Uh, focus on the part that's pure. Everybody starts with mixed motives. How, you have to. <laughs> How can you not start with mixed motives? If you start with without mixed motives, then you're already pure on day one. So how is that possible? We say you can't start Krishna consciousness until you're at the end of Krishna consciousness. But at least you have to have the intention to have the intention, if that makes any sense. So I may see that my preaching of Bhagavatam is mixed. It may not just be mixed with money. It may be mixed with a desire for fame. It may be mixed with so many things. You know, if we really look in our heart, I don't know about you guys, but when I really look in my heart, um, it's not particularly attractive. So it may be mixed with so many things, but you focus on the, on the good. You focus on the good. You feed the good. You starve the bad. And you want to want to want to have only the good. You have the intention of having the intention of having the intention. 
that, okay, Krishna, although I'm doing this so people will praise me and I'm doing this so that, you know, getting money, I mean, frankly, it can even be the brahmachari living in the temple is thinking, I'm giving Bhagavatam class so I'll get a place to sleep and something to eat. It's not just, you know, some grahasta maintaining 10 wives and 500 children and 5 million mansions. I mean, we're not, we're not just talking about that. We can be talking about a simple brahmachari living in a temple thinking, I'm going to give Bhagavatam class because if I give really nice classes, then I can get some Mahaprasadam. You know, in London at Bhaktivedanta Manor, they always give the speaker a plate of Mahaprasadam. I mean, it could be that simple. They'll let me stay in the temple. But at least the intention that, you know, I'm preaching Bhagavatam with the hope that someday, I'll only want to please Krishna, that someday my desire for the Maha plate and my desire for someone saying great class will be gone. That someday I won't have these desires in my heart. Uh, then that's also considered a pure intention. And that's all we can do, you know. I mean, just who can do better than that? And then you tell me it's a great class. All right, thanks. Um, and then Kandita says, I'd really like to know how to remember Srila Prabhupada's books and classes better. Well, I think I just talked about that in the class. I gave two examples. One is having study methods, especially with a partner, where you study Prabhupada's books threadbare. And if you're interested in Krishna Dharma and Chintamani Dham's method, they have a whole email group that they send stuff out to periodically. They have discussions on Facebook. And if you ask them, they would be thrilled to share with you and to help you step by step in every respect for as long as they're on this planet. So they're, they and, and a lot of people who work with them and their method are very, very eager to share it and to, as I say, to help you with that. And then I like listening to audiobooks. I mean, I think you have to experiment a little bit and try different things with different people, always in the mood of, of real deep meditation. Okay, any other questions anyone has? Yes. Yeah, you can unmute everybody, and I'll just repeat it for the little mic here. I can probably say on another 10 minutes. This is my last class over Skype for this trip. <laughs> so that sounds really ominous. Okay, in this venue. Okay, so you have a question, Ramananda Prabhu. I'm just repeating this. You have a question, Ramananda Prabhu said he has a question that he's been waiting to ask, but it's not about today's class. Okay, go ahead. Okay, so... Okay, so it's a, it's, a, it's a verse from a previous chapter that mentions sinful people and includes women and laborers. Yeah. 
how can women be considered sinful just by birth? Well, it's not that the birth makes you sinful. It's that because you're sinful, you take that birth. Always remember that. Your birth doesn't make you sinful. Your birth's an in, in indicator of previous sins. Now, the first answer to that question is any material body is an in indicator of previous sins. That's the first answer. Prabhupada says, whether you're a thief of a diamond or a thief of a cucumber, you are a thief. From the highest planet in the material world down to the lowest, they're all places of misery. Well, if they're places of misery, that means they're full of sinful people because Krishna doesn't have uh, unfairness. So it's not that if you have no sin that you're going to suffer. I mean, some of Krishna's leelas may appear to be suffering, but that's a different category. So anybody who has a material body is sinful. So what we're talking about in verses like this, sinful people, is we're talking about a gradation. We're talking about a comparison, more sinful than something. So like the, you know, the people on uh, Tapaloka, they're more sinful than the people on Satyaloka. The people on the, the Maharloka, they're more sinful than the people on Tapaloka. The people on Swarga are more sinful than the people on Maharloka. If you read in the Brihad Bhagavatamrita, Gopakumar is going up from one planet to another to another, and then the people keep getting better and better and better and better and better. So the people on this earth planet are more sinful than the, than the entities on Swargaloka. That's why we have this body. It's just like there's a minimum security prison, medium security prison, maximum security prison, there's solitary confinement. So if there was a perfect justice system, which there isn't, of course, but if there was, then the people in the maximum security prison could be understood to be more sinful than the people in the medium security prison. So, so far, does that make sense? Yes? Okay. But everybody in the prison is sinful. So let's say that you said, well, this process works to reform prisoners, even the prisoners in the maximum security prisons. Even prisons in solitary confinement have been reformed. Or even the maximum security prison for the criminally insane. They've been reformed. So that doesn't imply that the people in the minimum security prison are not also sinful. So whenever we talk about sinful people within the material world, it's always in comparison to something. So one who, who is a, has inclinations to be a laborer, those laborer inclinations, as opposed to the inclinations to be a business person, as opposed to the inclinations to be a government ruler, as opposed to the inclinations to be a philosopher, and a, and a religious leader are relatively due to a greater degree of sin. The inclination to be a woman rather than a man is relatively due to a greater degree of sin. So that's really all it is. And I see there's no reason to really get particularly wound up about this. It's very much like saying... Um, you know, a Toyota is not as good as a BMW. The people who buy Toyotas probably have less money to spend than people who buy BMWs. 
And the response is, so what? If you have a car and your car works, you can drive to your destination. If you have a car and your car works, you can drive to your destination. Even people with Volkswagen bugs can drive to the temple. You don't need to have a Jaguar. You don't need to have a BMW. You don't need to have a Rolls Royce. You don't need to have a Cadillac to drive to the temple. Even people who can't afford Cadillacs can drive to the temple. So if somebody wants to argue that a woman's, that the, a, the form of a woman has equal facilities to the form of a man, we would have quite an interesting discussion. I just, I don't see how anybody can, can say that. I'm sorry. I, I think it's absurd. The form of a woman is much more restrictive than the form of a man. It doesn't drive as well. It's not as high class of a vehicle. It just isn't on any measure. You know, just it just isn't. There is more during the woman's youthful life from age 12 to 50. The bodily chemicals fluctuate more. It's a lot harder for the entity in a female body to have stability. If you think of it as a car that's kind of jerky, you know, it's not a really smooth ride. So the, the yeah, the it's it's like the transmission system doesn't quite inject the fuel smoothly and uniformly. I once had the most unfortunate experience of going to a rathiatra with a driver who didn't exert or try to exert steady pressure on the accelerator pedal, but he would give it fuel in spurts. So he'd push down the pedal, then take his foot off, push down the pedal, and take his foot off, and I felt really nauseated. So a ride, a ride in a female body is something like that. It's, it's kind of nauseating because it's, it's always going up and down, you know, at least from about age 12 to 50. You know, and at about age 50, you get off the ride, and when you get off the ride, you tend to be sort of dizzy for a while, too. So it's, 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 it's difficult like that. You know, it's the woman who, who's pregnant. It's the woman who's breastfeeding. It's the, there's, there's definitely more restrictions on a female body. Um, you know, so it's, it's a lower body. You didn't have as many karma coins in your bank account. Now, having said that, I'd much rather have a female Brahmana body in a learned, educated family than a male, you know, tribal body in some monkey hunting in the forest group. So it's not that all female bodies are indicative of greater sin than all male bodies. That's not an accurate statement you have to compare, it's a, comparing a female body to a male body of the same socioeconomic status, of the same varna, of the same general circumstances, then the female body is a lower body. But, I mean, there's plenty of male bodies in the world that are much worse situated than my female body. So it's, it's a holistic thing. You can't, it's not about all women and all men. So I hope that answers the question. We have this question. Was that, was that all right? 
the best answer you could have ever imagined. Well, you must, you know, you must realize that I've had to think about that question for a long time. Okay, I didn't just think about it this morning in the last two seconds. So Jai Jagadish asked me about contraception being a dharmic, but he says less contraception equals more abortion. Well, you know, Jai Jagadish Prabhu, let's just forget about Shastra and Dharma for a minute, and let's just look at statistics. Let's just look at statistics. So, in 1960, in America, 4% of children were born out of marriage. Right now, in 2014, 40, that is 4-0% of children are born out of marriage. We've gone from 4% in 1960 to 40% in 2014, children born out of marriage. And sociologists will tell you as soon as you get to 17% of children born out of marriage in a society, that crime and instability starts skyrocketing. So the question is, why, with an increased use and and social acceptance of contraception, has the number of unwanted children been multiplied by 10? This concept, this concept that the use of contraception decreases births of unwanted children is simply wrong. It's just not a statistical fact. So up till 1960, there was not widespread use of contraception. You know, the, the pill, especially the birth control pill, became widely available at that time. So, and and you go back even earlier, you know, if you go back to like the 1920s, when even contraception in marriage was very socially frowned upon. So there were were far fewer unwanted children and far fewer abortions. So this idea that contraception prevents abortion is not accurate. Acceptance of contraception in society increases abortions in society rather than decreases them. The legalization of abortion in society happened only after the widespread social acceptance of contraception in society. Abortion was not legalized in a society where contraception was not socially, legally, morally acceptable. And I don't think that you can find any historical situation where contraception is not widely available and socially acceptable, and yet that there's legal and acceptable abortion. I don't think it exists. Abortion is the next logical step after contraception. It doesn't exist in the absence of contraception. Of course, some women, I'm sure, have had abortions for millennia, especially prostitutes, I'm sure, without any doubt. Um, but as far we're talking about widespread social phenomena. So one can analyze why there's this connection, but I think the connection is very obvious, that the whole idea of contraception, and especially when you go to contraception that's supposed to be almost absolute, like the birth control pill, then you separate sex from reproduction, and you give people the concept that they have a right to sex without reproduction. That there's some kind of inherent biological right to non-reproductive sex. 
which from a biological standpoint is obviously ridiculous. How from a biological standpoint does anyone have a right to non-reproductive sex? It doesn't make any sense. It's like saying I have a right to non-nourishing food. I have a right to eat as I have a biological right to eat as much as I want without gaining weight. You know, it's from a biological perspective, and we can understand a lot about the will of God through biology. From a biologically perspective, those are absurd statements. And as soon as you go against the nature of things, you suffer. That's the beginning, middle, and end of the story. As soon as you use something in a way opposite to how it's designed to be used, to how it, it, then there's going to be damage. There'll be some damage. Like my father always told me, don't force things. He was talking about like a machine or an object. But it's true as a general thing. When we, we force, we break. And in our efforts to have good population, we've destroyed the population. Because that's not how you have good population. And in fact, this was exactly Krishna's argument to Arjuna. Now that we've gone from statistics and logic, let's go to Shastra. So Arjuna said, if I kill all these men in war, there'll be unwanted population. Krishna said, no. If you run away from your duty, there'll be unwanted population. He said, I have no duty to perform, Krishna said. But if I still, if I didn't do my duty, everybody would follow me and there'd be unwanted population. Unwanted population comes from not doing one's duty. It comes from being selfish. It comes from not being willing to sacrifice. That's what unwanted population comes from. It comes from... I just read a fascinating article yesterday about this Orthodox rabbi who was like a gangster. And he had a group of thugs who would beat up people and torture them. Now, who was he beating up and who was he torturing? He was beating up men who refused to divorce their wives. Because according to Jewish law, there can only be a divorce if the husband agrees. The wife cannot unilaterally divorce her husband. And so there were situations where the men would not agree, and so the women would then hire these rabbis to literally torture, I mean, actually torture with scalpels and cattle prods and tasers and uh, these guys so that they would sign the divorce agreement. But it was interesting, the author of the article said that in the Orthodox Jewish community, he had never once seen a divorce due to incompatibility. The only divorces that he had seen in the Orthodox Jewish community were due to some sort of serious abuse and neglect and infidelity and things like that. So this is the, the, the point, that if one does one's duty, there's not unwanted children. If people have a mood of sacrifice, then there's going to be good children. And the question of abortion is, is hardly ever going to come up. I mean, previously abortion was there only if the child endangered the life of the mother. And, you know, even if the child was an uninvited guest, even if the child came from rape or incest, which is certainly an uninvited guest, uninvited guest is treated as God. So there is abortion 
not because there's not enough contraception. There's abortion because people have lost the view of sacrifice and duty. They've lost the view of giving. You know, I didn't invite you to my house, so get out of here. You know, I, I know of some people who traveled in India, like I've read Naswami in his book, but who traveled in India without money, and wherever they went, people said, you can stay in my house. You can eat at my table. And they, yeah, they'd even be offended if, if you would refuse them. I mean, this is such a radical concept in the West. Why would I just invite some homeless stranger some uninvited guests to stay in my home and eat at my table. But, you know, I have one uh, devotee friend who got pregnant from a rape, and she was saying, I guess I was destined to have this child, and because I had taken a vow of celibacy, it was the only way for Krishna to give her to me. And she saw it like that. She said this was a gift from God. So it's... Uh, abortion comes from a, 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 a view of taking rather than giving. It comes from a not understanding what is dharma. And if you do something lesser adharmic, it leads to more adharmic. Contraception leads to abortion. Rupa Goswami explains in the Nectar of Devotion how one of the consequences of sin is that sin increases our predilection to sin. One consequence of sin is suffering and what we call karmic reactions, but another consequence of sin is our desires to sin increase. So when one takes the smaller sin of contraception, they're more likely to take the larger sin of abortion. All right, let's just summarize this verse again. This is about the time of death, giving up one's body. We talked about how not only is there a test of the time of death, but really, we're being tested at every moment. And this test is not something aggressive and punitive. It's really more like an interview where Krishna and the heads of the universe are asking, what do you want, what do you want, what do you want? And there's an unlimited number of destinations, both immediately in this life and long-term after death, according to what we want. You know, it's not it's not just a pass fail kind of exam. It's a it's a you know unlimited practical menu of what you could want. And if we really want to be good, if we want to have lived a good life and made good decisions, which everybody wants according to their definition of good, that the ultimate good is to be absorbed in our ultimate self, Akila Atmani, the supreme self, and to be giving in sacrifice to that supreme self. That is the ultimate good. That is the ultimate expression of what we could ultimately want, although people are sometimes given by God and by great devotees something that's a lesser thing because they're not ready for the ultimate good. And the best way to be giving to our supreme self for the ultimate good, as explained in this verse, and there will be other things explained elsewhere, but in this verse, the best way is uh, hearing the Bhagavatam, hearing about the narrations of the Lord in a way that's reflective, in a way that's absorb, absorbing, so that one's mind then becomes full of Krishna and free from maya, free from falsity in her variety of modes. 
Srila Prabhupada Ki Jai, Srimad Bhagavatam Ki Jai.